So since March, our church has been walking through the book of Acts together, where we have witnessed the early church begin to fulfill the great commission of Jesus as they have been empowered by his Holy Spirit. And so last week, Dave kind of overviewed three chapters, but really camped out in Acts chapter eight, talking about how the church experienced a lot of pain and a lot of persecution and how the Lord used that to propel the gospel forward. And one of the significant events in that passage is Acts chapter six and chapter seven, where there's a guy named Stephen who becomes the first Christian martyr, where he preaches the gospel and it so offends the religious leaders of the day that they stone him and they murder him. And that just starts this wave of persecution and scattering of the church, but how God used that scattering of the church to propel the gospel forward. And that leads up to to chapter nine, where we're gonna be today, where we get a picture of how unexpected God's methods are in comparison to what we typically expect. And we all have expectations. When our expectations are not met, we're often disappointed. When we have expectations and an experience exceeds those expectations, we are thrilled. And some of our greatest memories and moments are when our experiences, or when we experience the unexpected. And I think about one of my favorite unexpected moments happened a couple of years ago on vacation. Um, my wife Molly and I had the incredible opportunity to go on a trip to Greece um, with some of our best friends. And we uh, booked an Airbnb on this tiny little island that has like exactly what you want. It's like the postcard pictures of the iconic beaches, the little beautiful homes on the cliff overlooking this incredible water. It just like is ideal. And so we booked an Airbnb and we went over there and um, turns out there are multiple sides to the island and our Airbnb was on the other side of the iconic things. It wasn't trashy, but it was not what we were expecting. And I remember like being like, okay, here we go. And uh, we got dropped off, we unloaded our luggage and we start walking around because there was stuff to do where we were. So we started walking and we bump into one of our neighbors and he is painting um, his house, he lives there. And we wave and smile, continuing just on walking by. Um, But he had more in mind and he said, hey, my name is Gandhi, which I was like, oh, wow. Um, That's a name that he goes by, but not his real name. And he's a really friendly guy that we start small talking with. And um, he asks where we're from, all that stuff. And uh, we tell him we're on vacation. He says, oh, I've been meaning to take a holiday. I think I might take one tomorrow. And we were on vacation. We're like, that is a great idea. Vacations are great. And uh, he's like, that's perfect. And um, talk for a few more minutes. We go on our way go do the rest of our day. And then that evening, we are walking down the street and Gandhi is on a patio for dinner um, nearby where we are. And he beckons us over and invites us to join him for a meal. And we say, hey, we've already eaten, but we'll gladly hang out for a little bit. And he proceeds to tell us that he is going to take a holiday tomorrow and his plans include us if we would like to go. And I was like, okay, we're not really sure about it, but he's a really friendly guy. And he starts describing this incredible day full of his favorite things about the island. And we're kind of like, that sounds like a lot of fun, but who is this guy? We don't know him, you know, what are his motives, all that stuff. He said a few things that we're kind of on edge about, but we're like, maybe, there's four of us, one of him. Um, But we said, we're gonna go home, we're gonna talk about it and we'll come back and we will discuss and we'll let him know later that night. Got his phone number, all that. So the next morning we are renting ATVs um, because we're gonna follow him on his motorbike all throughout the island. And I tell you, it was the most incredible experience. He took us from, I mean, like 8 a.m. till at least eight or nine at night all over this island to the highest points, 
to the most beautiful views. We sampled some of the greatest food, like the location. We went cliff jumping. We um, went out to this little rock formation and watched the sunset just drop into the ocean. We could not have paid for a better tour of this island. I was just dumbfounded that we stumbled in to this conversation with Gandhi, and it was a wonderful day. Gandhi was unexpectedly good to us. It was a thrill that I will never forget. And I share this story with you today because I'm still not quite sure how we stumbled into that adventure. We could not have planned it on our own. And I'm a planner. It's like, I, w- I wanna plan, I wanna know what we're doing, I wanna know what I'm committing to before I get in. It's just kinda how I worked. And so if I was planning the trip, we would have had a good time and we would have seen some of the island. But there was somebody there that was a whole lot more equipped that we could not have found on our own, but we just kinda stumbled into. And it was such an unbelievable, unexpected gift. And the reason I bring this up is because Acts 9, we learn that God is not confined to our expectations. And often his expectations make us uncomfortable. However, his unexpected adventures, callings, and methods just work, but they're unexpected. So let's pick up in Acts chapter 9, page 750, if you're using one of our Bibles, verse 1. I'm going to be reading out of the ESV translation, which may be different from some of y'all's, but you should be able to follow along. Verse one, Acts chapter nine. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So if you've been following along to this point in the book of Acts, you might recognize the name Saul. Saul was the one who led the charge that I talked about a few minutes ago with with Stephen. He was the one that, that preached the gospel and he was murdered. And everybody took Stephen's clothes and took the, everything to Saul. Like he was the one there collecting everything. And at the beginning of chapter eight, we're told that Saul is ravaging this young church. Saul was a devout Jew who did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah that he claimed to be. And the persecuted church, as we said, was now spreading all out throughout the Um, Middle East at this point, and religious leaders like Saul were upset that this was happening. And so they were using force and their influence and their authority to stop the movement of God because they thought that these people were leading the men and women of Israel astray from the faith of their ancestors. They were using the force necessary to stop it. Some of the followers of Jesus were being arrested. Some, like Stephen, were even killed. And what we just read was that Saul was seeking permission from the religious leaders to arrest more people outside of Jerusalem so that he could prosecute them back home in hopes of stopping this movement that they were a part of. So let's keep reading in verse three through nine. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. With the letters in hand to arrest followers of Jesus, Saul begins this 120-mile journey from Jerusalem to Damascus. And as he's walking on this journey, a great light interrupts him, and the light is so disorienting 
that he falls to the ground and he begins to hear the voice of Jesus crying out to him saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting him, persecuting me? And Saul doesn't know who it is, but he knows that something great is happening. And he asks, who are you? And Jesus reveals himself as the one who is being persecuted. Jesus interrupts to share that Saul is persecuting him personally. Jesus, who in Saul's mind has led many astray from true faith in God, has shown up in a way that is completely unexpected to Saul. And not only that, Jesus is making a big reveal about his relationship with the church. And so we have to ask, who is the church? Because Jesus, or the scriptures in this passage will use the word saints, disciples, those following the way, followers, and more, all who point to those who have submitted to Jesus with their lives. Here in this moment, in this time, it is the women and men who have put their hope in Jesus, but they're struggling, they're dying, they're being arrested, they're scattering, and more. These are Jesus's people. He is aware of their pain. In fact, he's experiencing the same persecution that they are experiencing. And later in the New Testament, Jesus will even use the words, he will even describe the church as his bride, because Jesus loves the church that Saul is dismantling. He takes it as a personal offense that Paul is using his time and energy and effort to stop the church. And this is something for us to take notice of, I think, because we are aware of that the church today and throughout history has often made a mess of things, as with any group that includes people in it. The church has done some awful stuff. It is tempting and easy to trash the church and treat it with disrespect, to to treat it with hate, judgment, and discrimination. But Jesus identifies with his church. Jesus stands in solidarity with his church because Jesus loves his church. The church is his bride. And so take note that there is a way to critique. There is a way to love toughly. There is a way to contribute to the reform of the church that is not destructive, but is rather constructive but I would encourage you not to ever attack another man's bride. And I would for sure not attack the church knowing who claims them as his bride. And after Jesus shocks Paul with this rebuke, he gives him the instructions to go to Damascus and there he will find the rest of the plan. So Saul regains his composure. He stands up and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. Molly uses this same description for me when she asked me to go find something for her. It says, his eyes were open, but he saw nothing. I cannot find anything, y'all. Only here, Saul really is blind. He's led into the city by his traveling companions. He doesn't eat or drink in the midst of his confusion because Jesus had shown up and interrupted his plans. And I'm sure he had a lot to think about. So let's keep reading in verse 10 through 16. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Lord, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he is with authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. 
for I will show you, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Ananias has got to be thinking, or well, let's back up here. So Ananias is introduced as a disciple who lives in Damascus. He's a part of this small persecuted body of believers. The Lord shows up to him in a vision and reveals that he is to go and find Saul of Tarsus to lay his hands on him and to heal him. And you can hear in Ananias' his words, his response to the Lord, he's like, Lord, don't you know who this guy is? He's here to arrest people like me, possibly even kill people like me. Ananias has got to be thinking, are you sure about this, Lord? Shouldn't we be excited that this guy is blind? He's the one that's killed our brother Stephen. He's the one that is trying to stop your church and you're wanting me to go heal him? You can hear the tension, the frustration. It sounds like a good idea just to leave Saul alone is probably a temptation that Ananias is dealing with. But the Lord's methods are unexpected. His methods are different from Ananias's, different from mine, and probably different from yours. Saul is God's chosen instrument to bring his name to the Gentiles, to the kings, and to the children of Israel. God sees more in Saul than Ananias or we can see, because we see the religious nut who is stopping the movement of God. God sees a candidate with dynamic potential to spread the gospel. Ananias is caught up in who Saul is, and God can see what Saul can become. But Saul's call from God is not an easy call. In fact, Jesus says that he will show Saul how much he must suffer for the sake of the gospel. You know, a call from God is always good, but good does not always mean easy or uncomplicated. However, good, as you read the rest of the book of Acts, you will see Saul's call is a very difficult call, but it is one that eventually propels the church to unprecedented growth. God is not arbitrarily making Paul or Saul suffer for his punishment or because of his past or anything like that. No, I believe God sees Saul's disordered zeal, his disordered passion, and God wants to redirect that because he knows that Saul is okay facing opposition. You know that Saul can pursue hard things and God simply wants to shift that in the right direction because God never wastes anything, particularly our past and particularly our personalities. We might spend a large portion of our life using them in disordered ways, but God longs to order our past, our personalities, our giftings and our passions in a way that contributes to the good of the gospel. That's what's happening here with Saul. God has chosen Saul because of his past, and he will use his past to propel the church into a new future. So we see how Ananias responds in verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord who has appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. To Ananias' credit here, he responds with courage in a moment of immense difficulty. He goes to find Saul, and he lays his hands on him, and he heals him, and he gives him the Holy Spirit, and he eventually baptizes him. But it struck me that Ananias called Saul his brother. This is before Saul has done anything of value or worth for the kingdom. It's before he's shown a repentant heart, before he's shown 
um, any type of life change. It's before he's penned any letter, before he's borne any gospel fruit. Saul is simply blind and humbled at this moment. He's put to death some of Ananias' brothers and sisters, and he's arrested others. Ananias hears from God, and that is enough for him to call his enemy his brother. He's assuring Saul that he's a part of the family now. The beauty of the gospel is on display when enemies can become family. This only happens when God moves and the church responds in faith. And so Saul gets up, he eats, and he regains his strength. And the next several verses here, kind of through the end of the chapter, share that he's with the disciples in Damascus for some time. We think based off of the rest of the accounts of some of the New Testament letters, he was in Damascus for about three years, learning from the church and fellowshipping with them. And he quickly begins to start testifying that Jesus is the Son of God. The people are amazed in the synagogues as they witness the man who was the most formidable opponent of the gospel start preaching the same gospel that he was so radically opposing. Because the transition from enemy to family is apparent not only within the church, but for those who see the church from the outside. As it turns out, as the rest of the scriptures will attest to, that God's unexpected missionary was the right call. Saul is the Hebrew name for Paul, which he will be known by for the rest of his ministry, starting in Acts chapter 13 and beyond. And if you'll recall from a few verses back, God has chosen this man to bring the good news to the Gentiles, which means that they are, and in Gentile means that they're not of Jewish descent. And so Paul, who is a Jew, grew up in a Gentile city, hence his Hebrew name, Saul. He would not only travel all over the Roman Empire proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles, he would bridge the vast gap between the Jews and the Gentiles, of which his life was squarely in the middle of. He would write almost half of the books of the New Testament, and his inspired words continue to shape the church today. God's methods were shocking to Ananias, but they proved, but his methods proved to be more potent than anything that the early church could have expected or come up with on their own. Paul of Tarsus is not the man that the early church would have sought to become the apostle to the Gentiles, but God's plans are unexpected. The enemy became family who would lead the church to exponential growth. And so just reading through this story, I think preaches more than any interpretation that I could give to it today. But as I was reading through it this week, just three things were bubbling up in my heart that I think have profound implications for us as the church today. And the first thing that was kind of bubbling or stirring up in my heart is a question. Will we accept whatever call God has for us? Will we accept whatever call God has for us. Because we love to pray for and accept calls of greater influence, greater leadership, anything that involves our up and up, anything that includes our perception of what is good. But God's good is often different from our perception of what is good. Our good typically involves some level of comfort and some level of preference. And we live in a day and age that a lot of us, but not all of us, but a lot of us have the privilege to choose things that benefit us, that make our lives easier every single step of the way. And that's not always the case with God's good. The Apostle Paul interrupts, or his, uh, his good is interrupted by God. He was a religious leader who had influence, who was gonna get more influence and more wealth as, he continued, as time continued to pass by because he was educated in the right schools, he had the right family, he had all the credentials. 
but God went and interrupted his plans to give him another calling that he wholeheartedly embraced. But it came at a cost. Jesus' call for Paul was to be a wave breaker for the gospel. He would be the one that would pave the highway for the gospel. God, or Paul did the hard work and his calling included imprisonment, beatings to the point of being left for dead, a life of being a nomad, humiliation, and the sacrifice of his preferences for the opportunity of others to embrace the ways of Jesus. And he did it with joy. He found purpose and meaning and deep fellowship with God and with others. He had a full life, but it was a hard life. Paul's calling also included the call of celibacy. When we are first introduced to him, he's described as a young man in Acts chapter seven. He had his life ahead of him. He became so committed to the gospel that he thought it would be better for him to forsake marriage to, in order to pursue his time, effort, and energy and put all of that into the calling that God had given him. Paul himself even recommends to others to embrace a lifestyle of singleness and calls it a spiritual gift in 1 Corinthians chapter seven. And so marriage is a God-ordained and beautiful display of the gospel, but it is not the only calling and way of meaningful life in the kingdom. Paul displays the potential of a lifetime commitment to singleness for the sake of the gospel as a legitimate and beautiful expression of following Jesus. We are all called to different things, but I believe we often limit the callings that God might put on us and put on others. And God's call does not have to conform to our expectations. Will we trust and will we accept any call that God puts on us? And so the second question that was stirring in my heart as I was reading through this is, will we have Ananias' courage? Will we have Ananias' courage? This short passage is the only account of Ananias. What, a, what an account to be known by. What a, what a role to play. God appears to him in a vision with the impossibly hard task, hey, go and knock on your biggest enemy's door who's here to arrest you, and just trust me. That's the call. Ananias' response shows that it is okay to question God and still trust his word. All that Ananias had to go on was God's word, and he quickly obeys what God has for him to do. He's afraid, but he does not let that fear hold him back from acting on what he knew he needed to do. This is a picture of courage because courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is being afraid and knowing something is hard, but choosing to do it anyway. This reminds me of one of my favorite chapters in The Hobbit where Bilbo is in a cave alone in the dark and he has no friends around him and he knows that he is walking through a tunnel to a dragon that lays ahead. And he's afraid of this dragon. It's killed people and it's filled the land with fear, but he knows he's gotta go. And there's a point where he thinks about just staying in the cave. There's a point where he thinks it's better just to stay here or to go home and enjoy my food, enjoy my drink. And he's tempted because he's paralyzed. Those running or staying sound like great options when you're in fear. He's afraid of what's ahead, but he chooses and makes the hard choice just to take one step forward. And he keeps going. And I love that. The idea is that he chooses courage in the midst of fear. And the, the big choice was not facing the dragon. The big choice was just taking steps into his fear. As the author Tolkien puts it, going on from there was the bravest thing that he ever did. The tremendous things that happened afterwards were as nothing compared to it. He fought the real battle in the tunnel alone before he ever saw the vast danger that lay in await. 
Fear grips our contemporary culture. The church fathers Augustine and Thomas Aquinas both teach that courage is a virtue that when exercised can lead to a better, more full life with God. Choosing to be courageous in the small things leads to courage in bigger things. We aren't told directly in this passage, but I can only imagine that Ananias' life was marked by being courageous in small things to the point where he could do something so full of fear and say, yes, I'm gonna go knock on the door. He exhibited courage at a time when he and the rest of the church desperately needed courage to survive. He knew he could trust the Lord's direction even when it was hard and even when it didn't make sense. He could trust the unexpected methods of God. He had already fought the hard fight by choosing to have courage before he even knocked on the door. He said, yes. What might God be dreaming up in our community that we currently lack the courage to follow through with? Could the answer to some of our prayers require us to take courageous steps? Let's commit to being a church that does the hard things that we believe that God is squarely in the middle of. And the third and final question that's been stirring in my heart through this week is who are we holding back from God's plans because of our low expectations? Who are we holding back from God's plans because of our low expectations? Paul was God's chosen instrument to spread the gospel beyond the Jewish people and to bridge the gap between the Jews and the Gentiles. But to the early church, Paul was a terrorist and he was an enemy of the work of God. And the church was too caught up with Paul's present to see the potential of Paul's future. I found myself here a lot. When I think about when I first moved to Nashville almost 11 years ago, I was a freshman in college and I thought I knew a lot about myself as an 18-year-old, but turns out I was just beginning the path of self-discovery. And um, as it turns out, a lot of the people that I interacted with also didn't know much about themselves. And because of this and my interactions, I quickly judged people and wrote some off. Some were too annoying, some were too full of themselves. I could come up with a lot of reasons, but based off a few encounters, I could kind of determine this is somebody I wanna be with, this is somebody I don't wanna be with very quickly. And so to further solidify some of my character judgments, I signed up for the sanctifying job of becoming an intramural basketball referee, where you experience the pinnacle of college male maturity on the basketball court. <laughs> and I stand here in full acknowledgement that I was an awful referee. Um, blocks and charges are difficult to call, particularly when you are an 18-year-old lacking self-confidence to call anything. And so I still remember many of the insults that were hurled at me and who said them and most of the time, I, or I could not repeat most of those insults today in this teaching. And I went to a small university, which meant that I bumped into these guys all the time and did life with these. And I just kind of wrote a bunch of them off. It's like, man, this guy is never somebody I'm going to hang out with. He treated me like a turd. Like, there's no way I am like spending time with this guy. And so eventually a few years passed by and most of us eventually graduated. And some of those guys started showing up here at Ethos. Some of those guys started showing up at other churches and they began to take Jesus seriously, like really seriously, like to the point where they were being filled with the Holy Spirit and their lives were being transformed by what they were hearing about God. And I remember being dumbfounded seeing that dude has become this godly man. And I, I just remember being convicted. I was like, I gave that guy no shot. And seeing the Lord is raising him up to be a mighty man of God. And I've seen that over and over and over, not just in college, but throughout life, seeing people that I would have never expected to become the spiritual giants that they're becoming. I had no idea who they would become, 
based off my encounters with them, not expecting them to encounter Jesus. I would have never picked them to become the godly people that they are today. And on some level, I believe that we all do this. We often believe that there are people who are too far gone. We have enemies. It's the people across the political aisle. It's the coworker you avoid. It's the family member who sees the world through a vastly different lens that you see the world. It's the people you talk about when they're not around. It's the people that you make jokes about. I don't have to convince you that our church or that our, our world does not disagree well. Heck, most of us can't even have conversations unless we're in full agreement with somebody without starting a fight. But the story of Acts 9 is that the other might just be the one that God has unexpected plans for. It's almost as if Jesus was serious when he taught his followers to love their enemies. And church, by all accounts, we have a long way to go in this. Acts 9 demonstrates that no one is too opposed to the work of God to, become, to go from an enemy to a family member. No one. That's the gospel. Someone's present does not limit them from the future that they have in God. Will we have the eyes to see or will we continue to leave people out, to slander, to demonize, or to eliminate others from life with God? Jesus wants them all. Jesus died and resurrected for them just as much as he died and resurrected for us. We don't get to pick and choose, but we surrender to God's unexpected methods to bring about exactly what he wants to bring about. So for those of us who follow Jesus, what do we do about all this? What does Acts 9 speak to us? because this can be a difficult and challenging word. Will we submit our plans and our methods to whatever God might unexpectedly call us to? Will we choose courage in the face of fear? And who are our enemies that Jesus is calling us to love in ways that do not make sense? These are the questions I think the Lord is beckoning us to begin to wrestle with. He is after our good, but it might look a little different than our perception of what is good. It is always worth it though. And there is abundant grace for those of us who find us convicted or who find us refusing the calls of God or demonizing people or holding other people back. Jesus beckons us to receive his transformative grace that we do not have to do it alone. He can provide the means and methods necessary. And so if you are in that camp, you're finding yourself wrestling with one of these tensions from Acts chapter nine, I just invite you here in a few moments to come up to the respond banner to pray, to receive grace, to listen and say, God, here's where I'm at, but I wanna be somewhere different. There is grace for you this morning. And for those of you who have not submitted your lives to Jesus, my prayer is that you experience the beauty and the truth of the gospel, that there is no enemy that is too far gone from the Lord, that he invites those who oppose him and even, even those who work against him to become part of his family. He loves you and he wants you to know him. I ask you to forgive the church for all the ways that we have othered you through our words and through our actions. When we have done this, we have not been walking in the ways of our Lord. The good news is that Jesus heals, that Jesus forgives, and that Jesus redeems. This is available to you today. So come up to the Respond Banner if you're in need of healing, forgiveness, or salvation found only in Jesus. And so in just a moment, we're gonna, we're gonna stand up and take communion together. And on the bar and on the tables all throughout the room sit the bread and the cup for you to take and to bring back to your seat. The bread and the cup represent the very real presence of Jesus here among us. His blood that was shed for you 
and his body that was broken for you. And you, the beloved of God, receive these in grace. God willingly and he lovingly gave his life for you. We do this together as a reminder of our need for each other. And as you partake the bread and as you take the cup, I want you to ask each other, what is God stirring in you today? It's a simple question. What is God stirring in you today? So let's pray. Jesus, thank you for Acts chapter nine. God, thank you for the story of Saul's conversion. God, will you speak to us? Will your spirit just settle in our hearts? Will you lead us, God, to repentance or comfort, to encouragement or whatever it is that you have for us, God? We want to be a people that obey your plans, whether it's something we expected or did not expect. God, will you give us grace? Will you fix our eyes on you? God, will you help us be people who live in your ways and love in your ways? God, we trust you and we love you. It's in your name we pray, amen.